You are listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled Contentment, recorded on Sunday, June 10th, 2018. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to Harvest Community Church. First time guests, my name is Mike. Pleasure to meet you from a distance, as it were. Um, hey, listen, it's June, right? Father's Day is what, uh, two weeks? Next weekend, all right? So this is the perfect time to think about community groups. And you say, why? Um, a, a, a big part of what we do as a church that adds to our lives helps us grow as Christians, keeps us from feeling all alone in the world, helps us make good friends, helps us obey the Scripture's commands to love one another, which you can't do if you don't know one another, is we have something called community groups. And uh, community groups meet almost every day of the week in different houses, and they start again in September. So you're saying, dang, Mike, it ain't even Father's Day yet. Why are we talking about September. Because it's time to think about, in September, what community group am I going to? Now, if you already have one and you enjoy it, please go to that one. But if you have one and you haven't enjoyed it, we want you to know you're absolutely free to go to another one. But then there's a whole other need, and that is we need new ones. You do not need a mansion to have a community group. You can have an apartment. As long as you can get six, seven, eight people in there, You can have a community group in your home, apartment, double wide, whatever you got, you can do it. Maybe some of you in all of our campuses will host one in September. My wife and I are talking about, we've hosted them before, we might be hosting again. We're starting to think about it now. I want you to think about it now. Community groups, look, if you just go to church and worship with God's people together, that's a good thing. God will lift your spirit. But one of the elements that's often left out is the relationships needed to grow in grace. God gave you and I the church as grace. And community groups, sometimes you can join one, and after two semesters, they're 10-week semesters, you really start to feel like you belong. It may not be the first few weeks. But after a while, many people say, "These these become my best friends, and they really help me in Christ. Another reason we use community groups is you're going to hear a sermon. It's so easy to hear a sermon on Sunday or Friday night, if you happen to be there, and you forget it the next day. Well, if you go to your community group, all our community groups have sermon-based discussions. So the whole church in different homes comes together and discusses what happened in the community group. And leading a community group is easy, because you don't have to be a Bible scholar. You do have your Bibles, but the map, which is inside, um, this one won't have one, because community groups are out of session right now. But they'll have an extended map, and it'll actually have all the discussion questions. You might say, well, I don't know if I want to go to a community group because I don't know the Bible that well. All those other people are probably Bible nerds, and they're going to make me feel silly. Well, that's the good news. The Bible, the discussion will be on the actual sermon that you hear, so you're just as much an expert as anyone in the room. And you can even read ahead and see what the discussion questions are, and then you can say, okay, I've got this, all right? Um, But they're not just for intellectual learning and and application. It's a time where there's food, friendship, prayer. So thinking now, in September, after Labor Day, it's a long way off, maybe God wants you to host a community group. Maybe he wants you to join a community group. Maybe he wants you back in a community group. Now is the time to start that plan, okay? Thank you for that. Let me um, urge you towards that. I think it's very important for the health of our church, or we wouldn't take the time to talk about it. All right. Time to get to the start. Two more in 1 Timothy. Three. Two after this. So three. This one hasn't happened yet. Three sermons in 1 Timothy, and then we're finished with 1 Timothy, and we get to move on to the parables of Jesus. Now, we shouldn't be too excited about leaving 1 Timothy behind. I mean, Paul wrote it. He must have liked it, and uh, so I hope you're enjoying it. Um, So we're in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Jesus is good. Jesus is kind. Jesus is gentle. If you belong to Jesus, very important that you hear this, when he views you, he views you with tenderness, right? You may think the whole world hates you. You may hear voices that tell you 
the whole world hates you. You may think you're no good. You, other people, parents, friends, voices in your head may all agree you stink. But not Jesus. Jesus looks at you with tenderness. He died on a cross to take away your sin. He saved you. And he's always got grace for you. He died to make you not someone he doesn't like or someone whose faults, you know, I needed someone to pick apart, right? Could you imagine Jesus trolling you on Facebook? <laughs> you stink here, your opinion's dumb there. If he, he, he's perfect, he would see all our faults. We would, right? He doesn't troll you. He likes you. He likes you. He's going to say, I don't even like me. Well, your opinion needs to change. He likes you. He's on your side. He cares about you. When he went to the cross and he died, he paid with his own life to buy you out of hell, to pay for your punishment for sin so you could freely be forgiven, freely be acceptable. He's making you beautiful within, whether you know it or not, and when you see him in glory, you will be beautiful all over. So I want you to know how Jesus is looking at you. Now, there's another side to this. Sometimes people knowing that, or hearing that Jesus is good, maybe not knowing for themselves, they believe Jesus is soft. <laughs> he is good. He is gentle. He is not soft. He came to bring light into a dark world, to wash evil away. If you think of any movie where some vengeful crusader of some kind comes to clean up this dirty town. You know it's rough work he's come to do. Well, Jesus came to this wicked earth to clean it up. And he cleans it up with truth. And many people enter into the church or to want to say they want to know God or say they want to follow Christ, but they leave the truth behind. They say, I don't, I don't want Christ the way you present him, I think he should be like this. And there's just a lot of false teachers. Normally they come saying they're enlightening people. Um, when I was young, Christian, around 20, 21, a new Christian, a guy who we all love to hear was Tony Campolo. Maybe some of you have heard of Tony Campolo. Well, Tony Campolo is a tragic story in, in the Christian life. Uh, is he a Christian? I'm not even sure. Maybe, maybe not. But he's softened so often on what the Bible had to say about issues that the world thought the church was wrong. That he raised a son named Bart. They wrote a nice few Christian books together. Bart was a pastor. Today Bart is a secular humanist leading people away from Christ. Tony Campolo and his wife lead people away from the scriptures. He will be getting some sort of pride award this week because he has been enlightened and shown that marriage between a man and a woman is not sacred to God. <laughs> he wouldn't put it that way. What he would say is, I'm being loving to people who struggle with same-sex attraction. I would say, no, you're not being loving because truth is always loving. And he would say that was mean. Jesus looks at you with eyes of love, whether you have same-sex attraction issues or any other kind of attraction issues. But he never softens the truth. He never softens the truth. And those who do lead people astray. And he's not the only one. There are many false teachers who come in among us. And they twist doctrines all kinds of ways. And they cause others to stumble. It is never okay to twist the teaching of the Bible into any shape you want. The pressure on us today is greater than it's ever been. I think thanks to the internet, the information age, there's more people talking all the time telling us that we're backwards. But remember, if God says something is true, your society will always line up with it in some ways and disagree with it in most ways, no matter what age you live in. But societies rise, societies fall. The word of God never changes. And if the word of God is permanent and your society is not, that means one day your society will be out of date. 
but the word of God will remain contemporary. So if anyone says you believe old-fashioned things, tell them what C.S. Lewis said. Unless you believe the Bible, what you believe is eternally out of date. Paul wrote 1 Timothy largely to stop false teachers. And so as we turn to chapter 6, verse 3 to 11, he started that way, and now he's, in the, he's turning the final corner. We're almost finished with the letter. He's taking aim at him again. He's got his, his, his biblical shotgun, both barrels, and he's about to pull them both at once, right between the eyes of the false teachers. All of that is figurative. Do not shoot false teachers. 1 Timothy 6, 3 to 11. Um, 3 to 5 introduces our false teachers and their motives. We're going to look at that a little bit just to see what it says, but we really want to focus on verses 6 to 11 where we get to the main subject he's getting at. Okay, 3 to 5, 1 Timothy 6. You with me? If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, I know that's the middle of a sentence, but we're going to stop there for a minute, there is a plague of false teachers hitting them. And, and, and this is where people get soft. They say, they say well, <laughs> let's rethink this. What we believe seems so exclusive. It seems so out of date. It seems so wrong. No, no. If you teach a different doctrine that do not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, you need to be stopped. It is a disease. Notice that people who teach false doctrines, he says, depart, that what they leave behind is sound words from Jesus. If Jesus gives you sound words, he, is not, he does love you, but he's not just a teddy bear. He talks. <laughs> and what he says matters. Jesus is teaching, it says right here in this verse, accord with godliness. In other words, if you... In this ungodly world, living in darkness, and the light of Jesus comes to you, begins to show light on your path, and you walk that way, you will become more and more godly. That's the path. You know, there's a road sign. Road to godliness. Follow Jesus' teachings. The false teachers come into the church. We're not talking about people who aren't saying they're Christians. They come into the church, and they say, that's a nice path. Here's another one. And they take you away from godliness. Jesus came to lead you out of your sin. I know many of you know he led you out of your sin. I know many are grateful that he led you out of your sin. Do you want to follow someone who leads you back? No. So verse 4. If a person is a false teacher, starting in verse 4, it says, He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. False teachers often believe the crud they teach because they're confused in their brains. Once you choose, you're not going to follow the way of truth. Your brain's open season for deception, even to yourself. They're conceited. Look how awesome I am. Look how great I am. Look how indispensable I am to God's kingdom. But they understand nothing. They could fill a hall with thousands of people and understand nothing. Often, Christians are led astray by numbers. Might never makes right. Truth is always true. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy. They have a craving for quarrels about words, which produce envy. If you're using a paper Bible or an electronic one where you take notes, produce envy. That envy is a root of everything that follows. Dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of, of gain. Instead of godliness and teaching that leads to godliness, they want to argue about controversies and words, which means they think, I have special insight. Just sometimes, it drives my wife crazy when I do this. Some of us are entertained by this. Some of us are only annoyed by this. Some of us are sucked in by this. But sometimes I'll watch the TV preachers and not the good ones. <laughs> I like the good ones, but I'll watch the phonies so I can sit there and get ticked off at them. I don't know why I do that. <laughs> and they're always like, 
brother, did you see this where he said that? What? Many people think this, but the Lord showed me a special meaning. I'm hearing you, brother. Amen. And they're seeing special insight that you can't get from nobody else. Special insight. This teacher's more insightful. Listen, I do my best to teach you what the Word says. But if you ever start thinking, I got something new, you're making a mistake. What I'm giving you is the same thing you can get, hopefully, in a thousand other pulpits. (laughs) It better be. If I start coming up with new stuff, you have a problem. I have a bigger problem. It produces envy, it says. Watch out for envy or coveting anywhere you see it in the Bible. Very serious sin. Envy is a root sin. I mean, envy is in you. It's in me. It's a root. By root, I mean it's a root grows into a plant, and the plant, it's a root of a lot of sins. You want a good tree filled with sins? Make sure envy's at the root, and you'll get it. Cain killed Abel. First man born to Adam and Eve killed the second man born. Human beings are fallen. The first son was a murderer. What motivated Cain to kill Abel? He really had nothing in the game except he envied him. There was nothing else. Cain had what he wanted. (laughs) He had the riches of the world. But he didn't have what Abel had. Abel looked closer to God. Well, that caused envy and strife. That's what false teachers lead to. And that strife caused him to kill. Most people fight kill and go to war over envy there can be other reasons but they're very few mostly it's envy in the heart it's very easy to grow envy in your heart it's very easy to grow envy in my heart because it's already there it's supposed to be dead on the cross with christ but we can dig it up real easy Someone else's affections in the family is more towards this one than towards you. Someone else gets more recognition than you. Someone else has more stuff than you. Someone else the boss likes better than you. They're clearly an idiot, and you're not. What's going on here? It's really easy to stir up envy in the heart. Envy leads, according to this, to dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant Friction. Now, Jesus says, by this all men will know, you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. How can you have a healthy congregation if you have people in it who are producing dissension, slander, evil suspension, suspicions, and constant friction? You can't, can you? But he's not talking about people out there, he's talking about people in the church. He's saying, this is why it's so, this is serious, Timothy. Don't put up with false teachers. No healthy church can, can sustain them. They will always pop up. They've always popped up. There was never an age when the church was pure. If you think there was, you're wrong. <laughs> I don't know what I was going to say that. I, you ever start a sentence and don't know how you're going to finish it? So I just finish it with, you're wrong. I don't know if that's nice, but. If you ever thought there was an age where the church was without any false teachers, You're mistaken. History tells a different story. Someone says, what about Acts chapter 2? Have you read the book of Acts? The first church had to deal with envy right off the bat. Right off the bat. People fighting over who should get bread. No, we're always going to deal with it, but we always must deal with it. But then Paul seems to turn towards his main subject here on false teaching Having revisited it, the the subject of false teaching, at the end he wants to focus on money, I think, and treasure. Because he says these teachers do their ministry thinking that godliness is a means of gain. If I can be a godly teacher, and they deceive themselves that they are, I can get money. They, They do service so they can get money. And someone might say, wait, 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 didn't Paul just say back in chapter 5 that the preacher should not, don't muzzle the ox? So the preacher is an ox somehow? Okay, I can live with that, but don't muzzle him while, do you remember that text? He's great, let him graze. 
Didn't you say in another letter that, that the one who preaches the gospel should make his living from that? Why can't these guys see ministering as a form of income? There's a difference between ministering in order to make money and making a living while you minister. You can do many jobs because you need the money. I've probably had, before I became a pastor, about 28 jobs. You might think he couldn't keep a job. At times, true. (laughs) And at times, I would leave him for other jobs. And a lot of them I did not like. Sometimes you just do a job because you need the money. But you must never preach the gospel. Become a minister of the gospel as an elder who's teaching elder. You should never do that because you need money. You're just not allowed. Paul was teaching this. If you serve God, the flock is obligated to make sure you're served. But he also, he was not saying... If you serve God, it's a license to fleece your sheep. And, and that's an easy one to see false teachers, right? And here we can go to those television guys. They almost always end with, if you give me money, you will be blessed. You should not do that. Instead, call them on the phone. Phones are ringing. They're open right now. The Lord's going to bless you. Call them up and be blessed by the Lord by saying, I have an idea. I want the preacher to send me money and God will bless him. See how that goes. After introducing this idea, Paul focuses to contentment. So for the rest of our time, I want to just focus on the concept of contentment. Who doesn't want to be content, right? So, verse 6 to 11, I'm going to read it. Then we're going to have a couple of observations, a couple of applications, and then may the Lord speak to us all. 6 to 11. Godliness with contentment is great gain. There is great gain in godliness if you have contentment, too. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. For those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, Timothy, you listen to me, son. That's what he's saying <laughs> in redneck. In the redneck translation, he says, hey, boy, you listen to me right here. He says, as for you, old man of God, you flee these things. You run from that. Don't you love money? Instead, you pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Go be greedy for those things. Okay, two observations about that text. One, and this is on your map, greed never leads to contentment but to pain. (laughs) Loving and seeking money, living to gain money, never leads to contentment but to pain. I know this can be odd. I remember being young, I thought... The whole world wants my money. I need to get money. I got this wife. I got these kids. They want to eat every stinking day. And all I'm trying to do is make a living. And everyone needs my money. Things like money was always on my mind. You can have that and not be greedy. You just feel stressed and pressured. But if money is your only goal in life, you will not be content. You will be in pain. Some people say money is the root of all evil. It's even in a Pink Floyd song. But Pink Floyd is wrong. The Bible never says money is the root of all evil. Look again. I'll read it again. The text said, for the love of money. This is where the saying comes from. People just misquote it. When people say, money is the root of all evil, you tell them, fake news. (laughs) It's, It's not what it says. It says the love of money. Something that comes out of your heart. The money isn't evil. It's just money. It's just dust. It's just stuff. Something in your heart is evil. And it's, a, it's the root of all different kinds of evil. It doesn't mean every evil comes from envy and greed. But it does mean that all kinds of evil will come out of that. Once you start loving money, you can think of all kinds of ways to do bad. 
you can become quite a sociopath. This is really easy to prove. Just think through in your mind every cop show you see or real life. Most criminals are motivated by greed. They need money or the stuff money can buy, so they steal the money. People do kill for passion, have sex crimes and whatnot, but most crime is about money. Lawsuits. Some lawsuits are good. Justice needs to be done. An awful lot of lawyers, though, are on signs telling me that that last wreck I had, remember how you were hurt? No? Yeah, you were hurt. Oh, I was hurt. Yeah. They owe you. They owe me. Most wars are just about something as simple as, I want your stuff. People will lie and cheat. We have lied and cheated in this room for money. <laughs> they will steal. They will treat people poorly. When people get to a certain age, they shouldn't even answer the phone. Because there's people on the other end trying to steal from them. I really got an, opening, an eye-opening experience of this with my grandparents. When they hit their late 70s, early 80s, my grandfather could never hear a doggone thing. So somebody came and called him on the phone, which he couldn't hear, and sold him a hearing aid, which never worked. But he sold one to my grandmother, too. I said, Nana, you can hear. No, he put a machine on me. I thought I could hear, but I can't. <laughs> There is a hot, hot place in hell for people who do that. But what motivates them? Money. Loving it. But loving money, even if they get over on your grandmother or you or whatever, it'll never lead to contentment. They can get all, you can get all the money you're looking for, all the money you want. It'll always lead to, according to the scripture, pain. The desire for To be rich will cause you, Christian, to fall into temptation. I don't need more temptation in my life. Do you? Well, here's how to fall into it. Start living for money. You'll fall into a snare. Many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, the text says. Loving money will plunge you to ruin and destruction. Many pangs pierce the rich. This, is, this should get our attention, Christians, because we live in a society filled with commercials. Right? The apps on our phone, you click them and they're filled with commercials. Your radio is filled with commercials. Your podcasts are filled with commercials. Your television is filled with commercials. Your magazines are filled with commercials. There's commercials on the signs by the road. Everything around you is telling you, get money, spend money, you will be happy if you get more stuff. Reminds me of a veggie tale. How many of you know that one? Happiness is found at the stuff mart. All you need is much more stuff. And yet, Paul says they plunge you, that desire plunges you into destruction. Well, that's our society's message. Be rich, get stuff. America is the richest nation on the planet. You, by virtue of being here, are probably one of the richest people on the planet. You may feel poor compared to your neighbor because you can't buy anything you want. But if you have a warm place to sleep, a warm home, a fridge, and electricity to go into it, food in the fridge, a car, you are, you're in the top 5% of the planet. And that's, our lowest level of living in this country for most people. We're the richest, but would you say we're the most satisfied people on the planet? Rich people does not equal happy people. I had these examples from my own life, but I'm not going to use them because in prepping for this sermon, Kate Spade killed herself and then Anthony Bourdain did the same. Some of you ladies may know who the first one is, and if you watch Food Network, you know who the second one is, or Travel Network. (laughs) These are very wealthy, successful people. Didn't seem to help. 
Do you know suicide has moved up to the number 10 cause of death in America? Number 10. Wholly preventable, volitional, temporary, well, permanent solution to a temporary situation. That is not a society of happy people. Greed never leads to contentment. It's the one thing that always fails to deliver the very thing it's promising every time. Every time. It's, it's right up there with when uh, uh, Peanuts, uh, Lucy would hold the ball and say, kick it to Charlie Brown. He always wanted to kick that ball. He was such a sucker. No matter, he'd go up to kick it. And if you don't know the cartoon, those of you who do, when he went to kick it, what would Lucy do? She'd move the ball. And he tried it every year in the cartoons. He's like, this time I'm going to hold it for you. And he'd fall for it. She'd move the ball. That is greed. Never delivers. Instead, it brings you pain. At best, greed leaves you chasing your tail. At worst, despair. Second observation, godliness always leads to contentment because it is in line with reality. There's a reason why greed doesn't lead to contentment. It's a very simple reason. Because the things that make a human being content cannot be bought. It's not in line with reality, right? It just doesn't work. But godliness always leads to contentment because it's in line with reality. Godly people, I am not saying that as you increase in godliness, you will always be happy, at least not yet. But I am saying as you aim yourself for godliness, which good teaching will lead you to, you are on the path that maximizes your opportunity for contentment because it's in touch with reality. And the reality is the one thing your soul craves is feeling safe, loved, secure, and filled with wonder by the presence and knowledge of God. That's what your soul is craving. It's what everyone's soul is craving. Contentment with godliness is, therefore, attainable. Now, there are degrees. Ultimate contentment will come when we see him face to face. But earthly contentment is attainable. How much? More than you have now. But contentment with greed is unattainable. Got that dollar? You know the dollar on the string? (laughs) You'll never get it. Verse 6 again. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. Paul is making the clear statement. You came in naked, right? Well, you really had all that you need. Um, as far as what you're going to get out of this world. You'll need some food. You'll need a, you know. But what you need for contentment is not in this world. You came in naked, you're going to go out naked. Makes you happy for a minute. Contentment doesn't come through things you own. I like owning things. I like using things. But if you ever get any contentment, out of anything that lasts, it's only because you're, it leads you to thanksgiving for the giver of the gift. You appreciate God more, and you'll normally be generous with it. Because God is the satisfying treasure. You may not like that. I think there's some people who say, I would like forgiveness of sins. I would like to go to heaven. I just don't need God there. (laughs) If we could just have everything happy and no pain, no tears, no crying, I really don't need to meet God. Okay, that, that may be a fearful way of approaching things, but you're missing the whole point. God is the treasure. He is the satisfying one. The wealth of this world, the thing that people want the most is a rock. An actual rock. They want gold. It's a rock. I mean, I mean it's a rock. 
They want diamonds. It's a rock. I could be happy if I had this. Why? Because it's rock. How does that make you happy? Well, I got more than you. Does that make you happy? Seems like we're both unhappy now. I was happy before I knew you had the rock. Now I want the rock. Now neither of us are happy. The whole world is going after dust. Paper and rocks, the world is going to be thrown away and renewed. It's, it's a waste product. Whether it's paper, rocks, or bitcoins, it's a waste product. Out of all the living creatures on earth, think about the ones in your yard or nearby. Think about grass and flowers and birds and earthworms. Think about earthworms. Have you ever imagined an earthworm was unhappy? Except when you dig him up and cut him in half, I think he's fine down there. (laughs) Think about your trees. What is the most discontent, consistently living thing on this planet? Human beings. (laughs) If evolution was supposed to be true, it didn't work. Think about it. We're not the products of evolutionary process. If we were, the constant mutations would have led us to greater satisfaction. Because we'd have been constantly improved. We'd be the happiest doggone things on the planet. But we're not satisfied. Mankind is not satisfied. Amazing to watch people go to Walmart and just watch the people and look how many of them are not smiling unless they look at you and you smile at them. They ain't happy. We are made in the image of God. Only us humans. Dolphins, awesome. God made dolphins awesome. They're awesome in a hundred thousand ways, ways I don't even know. Whales, awesome. All their noises. Oh, oh, oh. I said, whales can talk. Oh, my dog can talk. Woof. Awesome. I love dogs. But only human beings are made in the image of God. We're also unsatisfied. How do those two things go together? The Bible has already told us the best explanation. We're fallen. We're sinful. We're not holy like our Father God. The one thing the baby's going to need to be satisfied on this planet, God. As Augustine said centuries ago, and it's been repeated often, in every human soul there's a God-shaped hole. And they will never be satisfied until it's filled. This is what Paul is teaching us. What are the implications of this text? I just have two, I think. Three. One. Contentment increases in the life of a godly person. If you're a godly person, content should be going like this. I'm not saying happiness. Because sometimes circumstances stink. Sometimes they're very difficult on this earth. Circumstances will get better in your life. They'll get worse in your life. They'll get better in your life. They'll get worse in your life. That's how life is. And then you die. Which is, if you know Christ, the best day of your life but it's a bad circumstances for the loved ones you left behind. Those who grow in godliness grow to learn that God is in control. Paul says if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. There's no doubt his audience is saying, can I ask a question, Paul? I don't think that's all I need to be content. I need a new iPhone. (laughs) Heck, just be nice to pay the water bills <laughs> wherever you're at. He's teaching them. This is a teaching point. He's not saying this is the way they already are. He says, be content just to be alive. You have food and clothes, the minimal. Be alive. That's all you need. He's trying to teach the church that truth. He's teaching me, he's teaching you. Everyone here should be content. In all four campuses, if you're here and you are hungry, in every campus we have snacks. Go rate it. (laughs) Okay, took care of that. No one's naked. Took care of that. You have all you physically can get from this planet to make you content. You already have it. 
That's what he's saying. But contentment grows. It's a learned state of mind. And you don't need secret knowledge. You don't need to read the latest guru book. You don't have to do yoga. You don't have to be on the paleo diet. Look what Paul says in Philippians 4. Watch this. He says, I'm not, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation to be content. Paul said, I had to learn this lesson. I wasn't always content. He used to be a whiner, apparently. (laughs) You happy? Yeah, I'm happy. Happy now? (sighs) You know, like, no, I'm not happy now. Well, he had to go through whatever lessons to learn to be content. Look what he says. I know how to be brought low. He said in other places, I glory in my suffering because I know it leads to the glory of God. My word, that is a godly man. And I know how to abound. He can handle riches. (laughs) They don't ruin them. In every circumstances, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, facing abundance or need. You know, we all want to learn the secret of facing abundance. (laughs) I'd like to face some more abundance, see how I handle that. I know winning the lotto ruined those people, but there's me. <laughs> Paul says, no, there's a secret that transcends all those things. And you say, well, what's the secret? You know, it's one of the most misused verses in our culture. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You thought that was the verse that helps you score touchdowns. Who helps you lift weights? You know, weight weightlifting Christians. I can do all things. And they they like rip all their tendons because they can't lift that much. <laughs> they lose the Super Bowl. No, he's saying I can endure whatever this life brings and be content with losing it or gaining it. I'm fine because of Christ. Paul learned that secret. It's a learned secret. It's an open secret. That means you must learn it. And you already know it to some extent. To some extent, you're content with life, even when things go wrong or right. But to some extent, you aren't, so that means you have more lessons to come. Some of you are right now suffering to learn to be content. And if some of you aren't, you say, well, I'm glad that's not me. Listen, you're going to suffer in this life one way or the other. Better to make something good from it. I want to read you the original serenity prayer. How many of you know what the serenity prayer is? If you've been to AA or NA or any of those, it's right, um, only a couple hands went up, but that's enough. You've probably heard it and don't know you know it. It's something like, God, grant me the serenity to, help me out, I don't remember the original now. Accept the things I can't change. Encourage change the ones I can, wisdom know the difference. Okay, that, believe it or not, is not the serenity prayer as it was written. It was first written by Reinhold Niebuhr, and I'm going to read it to you exactly. It's a little better. If that's a good prayer, this is a great prayer. But this is our goal. Ready? God, give us the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed. It's a lot. Give us the courage to change the things which should be changed. Give us the wisdom to distinguish one from the other. Living one day at a time. Enjoying one moment at a time. Accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. Taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it be. Trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. That's a guy who's thought through contentment and probably been dragged over the rocks. Godly people grow in contentment. Second, money's not the problem. The problem is in the heart and therefore so is the solution. (laughs) 
The problem is not money. Money is not the problem. I've often thought as a Christian, it'd be nice if we just didn't have to deal with money. It's a lazy way out, but hey, <laughs> you don't have to deal with money. Just everyone has enough. Everyone has food, everyone has clothes, and no one has to deal with money. This is a socialist utopia. This is for Bernie Sanders voters only. It won't work. You're going to have to deal with money if you live on this planet. And God knows that, and that's why he teaches on it. But money's not the problem. It's the heart that's the problem. We must deal with money and yet not love it. How do I do that as a Christian? Maybe I could take a vow of poverty like the old monks did. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. It's dumb. A vow of poverty will not take greed out of your heart. You know what it'll do? It'll make you a lot more uncomfortable. You'll sleep on harder beds, wear itchier clothes, have less food, be colder when it's cold, too hot when it's hot, and your life will stink. And you'll learn to be content, I guess, but you can have all those things happen and be just as greedy as as the richest guy on the planet. Because greed has nothing to do with how much you have. You can be poor and be the most envious, greedy little bugger. Just run around saying, he has more, he has more, he has more. I'm going to vote for Bernie Sanders. By the way, as you guys know, I'm an equal opportunity critic when it comes to politics, but I'm not talking politically. I'm talking matters of the heart here. This is envy. Taking a vow of poverty. Well, should we be rich? How much should a Christian make? What kind of car should it? There is no set amount. The Bible doesn't tell you. I mean, one way to say it is Christians should make as much money as they can and without sacrificing their values and their family. But that breaks down too. That's too simple. Sometimes... Taking a lesser paying job will do more good for the world and bring more joy to your life than a richer paying job. So making the most money or even stay in the same company, you might want to make less. There's no easy answers except to say this. The focus should not be on how much a Christian makes. It's what he does with what he makes. If he only makes $100 in a week, how does he handle it? Does he remember he's managing God's money? And I don't say he's a perfect money manager. Dave Ramsey is just there to make people like me feel guilty that I'm not as uptight and orderly as they are. But where's my heart when I have money? If I make a million dollars a week, how do I handle it? I was just talking with a guy who's, who's got this ministry where he's planting um, churches and campus ministries at the same time on major college campuses and God is blessing it. But you know how he gets from place to place so he can go to meeting to meeting? He has a friend who went to school with him. The friend became wealthy and bought a private jet. And he flies the guy anywhere he needs to go. Furthers the gospel ministry. Costs the guy much less money. The rich guy has to pay for it. What, do you want that guy to be poor? I don't want him to be poor. I want him to buy the jet fuel to fly this other guy around so we can have the gospel planting churches in cities in America. It's not how much you've got. It's what you do with it. Third implication is Jesus is the path to peace and contentment in this often troubled world. You should have known I'd end with this, right? How stressed are you these days? How much burden are you carrying? Do you know Jesus wants you to call on him? The night before the cross, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation. Your Savior said, I know that in this world you will have tribulation. Tribulation is suffering as bad as it can get or anything less than that. He says, I know this world is going to give you suffering as bad as it can get or anything less than that. I know, Jesus said, in this world you will have suffering as bad as it can get or even less than that. So any preacher who says to you, you were called so you could be blessed and you could be healthy and you could have a trouble-free life is speaking with the words of Satan. Because Jesus says, I know that in this world you will suffer as much as you can suffer or less than that. But I want you to cheer up because I have overcome the world. That's what Jesus says. 
He's talking about the same secret Paul is. I've learned to be content through Christ. Have you forgotten your Savior? And you say, wait, I know this is true. I know, but have you ever done this? I'm gonna really pull close to God and be more godly as soon as I handle the next few really stressful things in my life. I gotta get them out of the way so that I have time to pray. (laughs) Who's with me? Can I hear an amen or an ouch? Whatever. You don't seek contentment first, then run to Jesus. I got everything straightened out. Okay, now Jesus, refresh me. We do that, don't we? Don't do that. Turn that around. Are you in the fire right now? Are you in the fire right now? Right now. Jesus is in fire. He goes right into it. You know, are you on the boat and the storm is going to kill you? Right now. And you're like, I got to get this boat to land, then I'm going to be more godly. Jesus is in the boat. That's what the Bible says, doesn't it? He's in the trial. He's in the lion's den with you and a lion who wants to eat your head off. So we, 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 we've got to believe that he's there. Call on him right in the midst of the pain. <sighs> Say, I believe for your glory. Some here need to repent as a response to hearing this because you're greedy. All of us deal with greed, so in a sense all of us can, but I'm not going to let some of you off the hook because I don't know who you are, but I know you deal with it. You're just greedy. You're tight. All you think about is money. Money's everything to you, or you're proud. You make more money than this person, that person. No, you don't say it. You're proud of yourself because you ain't you something. Or you put your security in money. You're secure. You're safe because you got the rock. You got insurance. You're in the good hands, people. You've got your investments right. You're safe. You need to repent. It's not making you content anyway. Beware. Loving money will lead you to temptation. Some here need to find the treasure of Jesus for the first time. Treasure is free. Jesus said, all who are thirsty come and I will quench. He died for your sins. Time to surrender and take the free gift. And then there's some of you here who just need to rest in the presence of Jesus. It's not going to fix your circumstance or get you out. It's just to remember that Jesus is right there with you. In this world, you will have suffering. But be of good cheer. You just need to rest, knowing he's right there. Which one is you? Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.